You're listening to a sermon from Church of Christ at Treaty. For more resources, check out cctreaty.org. Here we go. So we're going to be in Romans chapter 11 um, and uh, verses 1 to 21. The title of the message is Faithful God. Amen? Like, that's a good title. Um, Sometimes you have to be sort of clever. You have to figure out like, oh, what are we going to call this? But this is just about a faithful God who is faithful and that we can say amen, which just means I agree. And, and uh, you're always free to yell and clap and cheer. Um, it, the more I, I preach faster when you interact. So I feel like you're not getting it. I got to dig a little deeper and we go a little slower. Um, amen. Yeah. <laughs> go right. Oh, man. Go, Diego, go. All right. Several years ago, uh, it, a lady named Guna Cruz, who was a Manila gu- uh, grandmother, had spent months. Uh, Pepsi-Cola had a f- numbers promotion, one of those uh, things that Pepsi Company did where she had bought several bottles every single day of Pepsi, hoping that one of the numbers on the inside of the cap would match the million dollar, actually million peso prize, which for her would have been $40,000. And so every day she would buy several bottles of Pepsi, hoping maybe to win a prize. When they announced the magic numbers that year in 1992 in May, she was ecstatic to find out that she actually won, not one, but two of the caps had the winning number on it. But unfortunately for her, the biggest shock came when she found out that she didn't win anything at all. See, Cruz and thousands of other people uh, were victims of a Pepsi-Cola computer error. Instead of making 18 winners, the computer had printed 800,000 winning numbers. And so Pepsi-Cola came out and explained that there was no way they had the money to uh, fulfill all of the claimants. And so they were going to look at the serial numbers, the security codes that were on the caps, and only identify the 18 winners. Can you imagine the disappointment of Guna Cruz and the thousands of people who thought that they had won? Maybe there have been times in your walk with God and your Christian experience when you feel like, when it feels like, God has let us down. Maybe you've done the best job that you could to raise your kids. You took them to church. You believed in God's promise that if you trained up a child, that they would never depart. But they are departed, and they are going the wrong way, and they are far from God. And you say, God, why didn't you keep your promise? Maybe you have given of your time, your talent, your treasures faithfully. You've tithed, you've given above and beyond over the years, believing in God's promise that he would meet all of your needs. Yet right now you're staring in the face of bankruptcy or debt or some financial crisis and you're asking God, where are you when you said you would provide and it doesn't seem like you're keeping your promise? Maybe you prayed about changing jobs. You had an opportunity to take a new job or a different job, and you didn't want to make a mistake. So you spent tons of time praying, asking, God, is this the right step for me and my family? And you asked for the Holy Spirit to give you guidance and discernment. So you made the change that you thought was right, and it's been a disaster. And the new job is horrible, and it's not going at all like you thought it was supposed to go. And you're saying, God, why have you let me down? 
Similarly, if you've ever asked any question like that, you're asking the same questions that many of the first century Christians asked, particularly when they thought of Israel and the Jewish nation as God's chosen people. We're in the book of Romans, which is Paul's letter to the church in Rome, which is full of both Jewish Christians and Gentile Christians. And God had made promises uh, after promises Promises of salvation to the nation of Israel. Promises of blessing. Promises that spiritual leadership would come out of there. But the nation of Israel as a whole rejected Jesus. They rejected the Messiah. The only one who could actually bring the blessing. The one who came to bring the promise. And the nation of Israel as a whole rejected their Messiah. So what's going to happen to Israel? Is God going to cancel the promises? Do they not matter anymore? Is God going to fail to keep his word with Israel? Is he done with Israel? Is he going to cast them off as not his people forever? Have they no more place in the will of God? And that's where we are today. These are some of the questions that Paul addresses in chapters 9, 10, and 11. We're going to be in chapter 11 today. In chapter 9, we saw Paul talk about the question of God's faithfulness to his promises of Israel by explaining what the promises did not mean. Paul was really clear that the promises didn't mean that every single um, Jewish person was guaranteed salvation because of their physical descendant um, status, that it was only those who spiritually were children of God that would be saved. And that was in chapter 9. And then in chapter 10, Paul explained sovereignty and the sovereign will of God, how he's in control, how he has the right to call the Gentiles and also to call the Jews, both of them, to be his spiritual children. And Paul explained that the main problem was that the Israelites had persistently denied belief in God and that they rejected God's plan of salvation by being disobedient and obstinate. Open up your Bibles to Romans chapter 11, verse 1. Paul begins with a question. In verse 1, he says, I ask then, did God reject his people? Now, specifically, we're talking about Israel. This is a, maybe a message that is going to be kind of challenging for you. Um, but Israel is God's chosen nation, and Paul is saying, did God reject his people? And then he says this, by no means. I am an Israelite myself, a descendant of Abraham from the tribe of Benjamin. See, Paul begins with this question, and then he's going to spend the rest of this chapter giving reasons to, to support his answer. We're going to work our way through this chapter and see that God's promises to Israel did not fail. And as we see that his promises to Israel did not fail, we are going to discover and realize why his promises to us will never fail. Amen? Despite what it looks like, despite what it feels like, despite what we may only be able to see in front of us, God's promises will never fail. And so today I want to look at two reasons that we know God has not rejected his people. And the first one is this. If you're the note-taking kind, the first reason we know that God did not reject his people is that there is still a remnant. There's a remnant. Um, we're going to see this word when we get to verse 5, 
But there is a remnant, and in this way, there's a remnant back then when Paul wrote this, and there still is a remnant today chosen by God's grace. When we think of a remnant, often what we think about is a piece of cloth at the end, right? When you make a craft, I'm so crafty and I sew and all those things, right? Um, But if you do, right, you know the remnant is sort of a small piece that's left over at the end. And so when Paul is talking about a remnant, he's talking about a small number of people who are left. God has allowed Israel to reject their Messiah. And at first sight, as we read the Scriptures, it looks like every single person, it looks like the entire nation has turned their backs on Jesus and rejected Him. But we know that God has kept His promise by reserving and preserving a remnant, a small number Jews who have come to Jesus by faith, have come to God by faith in Jesus. Then Paul goes on and gives us three examples. The first example he gave us is in chapter one, in verse one of, of chapter 11. We'll put it up on the screen again, but at the end of that verse, Paul says, I am an Israelite myself, a descendant of Abraham from the tribe of Benjamin. The first example Paul uses to remind us that there's a remnant is himself. He, the Apostle Paul, is Jewish. He underscores this by reminding us that he's an Israelite of the seed of Abraham, of the tribe of Benjamin. Paul's reminding them that he was a Jew who received all of the blessings of salvation that come from God. God did not fail to keep his word and save his people. God extended salvation, the promises of salvation, to the Jews who responded by faith in Jesus. And Paul was one of them. So we know there's a remnant because we have the example of Paul. The second example he gives us is in verse 2 through 4. It's the person of Elijah. He says, God did not reject his people whom he foreknew. Don't you know what the scripture says in the passage about Elijah? How he appealed to God against Israel. Lord, they have killed your prophets and torn down your altars. I am the only one left and they are trying to kill me. And what was God's answer to him? I have reserved for myself 7,000 who have not bowed the knee to Baal. So Paul reminds the church, I'm proof of this, that there's a remnant. I'm a Jew who have followed Jesus as Messiah. And then he reminds them of Elijah in the Old Testament, who was a man who was super depressed because he thought he was the only one left. And so he's going to God, and God reminds him that there are still 7,000 people who were faithful. See, the devil, Satan, loves when we think we're alone. He loves it. He thrives when we think that we are the only ones who are left. And then when that happens, many of us stay quiet because we think we're all alone, and we get depressed, and we get anxious, but when we stand up, and we realize that there is still a remnant, and we speak up and out about the Lord, our God, it encourages other people to do the same. God always has had, in the Bible, and even now, a remnant of true believers who are still following Jesus. He reminds us that Paul is an example of that, Jew who followed Jesus. Elijah was not alone. And then Paul reminds us in verses 5 through 6 that there are other Jewish Christians. 
So too, at the present time, Paul says, there is a remnant chosen by grace. And if by grace, then it can't be based on works. If it were, grace would no longer be grace. Paul is reminding the Gentile believers that there is still a remnant in Rome, that there were many Jewish Christians in their congregations. And we should be thankful today that there are many Jews today who have claimed Jesus Christ as Lord. There are many Jewish Christians that attend Christian churches. There is a a Messianic Judaism sect of Jews who are following Christ, and we should praise God that the Jews are still giving their lives to Jesus, and they are proof. Those who have given their lives to Christ are proof that God is faithful to the nation of Israel, just as he said in his word. He has not as Paul said, rejected his people. He's always had a remnant of believers and they are a monument of his grace. Grace and works, as he just describes in verse six, are mutually exclusive. Grace is something given freely to us and works is something we do to earn favor. But our hope in eternal salvation doesn't rest on anything that we've done. It rests entirely on the grace of what God's already done through Jesus. And so the remnant reminds us that God's grace is sufficient for all of us. Then leads Paul to ask another question of the church in verse 7. He says, What then, what the people of Israel sought so earnestly, they did not obtain. The elect among them, but the others were hardened, as it is written, God gave them a spirit of stupor, eyes that could not see, and ears that could not hear, to this very day. And David says, may their table become a snare and a trap, a stumbling block and a retribution for them. May their eyes be darkened so that they cannot see and their backs be bent forever. God's promises are sure and God has kept his word. But Israel as a nation has been temporarily set aside. The individual Jews have come to believe in Christ and they're being saved. There is still an elect remnant that have obtained salvation through Christ. But those who persist, Paul says, in unbelief have become hardened. Those who persist and consistently do not believe. And it's scary for us to think that God would allow the hearts of his children to be hardened. But I want to remind you that people don't refuse to believe because God makes them refuse to believe. God allows them to willfully refuse to follow him. It's the people who willfully and persistently reject God's grace and because of that he allows them to go their own way and eventually that looks like a hardening of their heart because God confirms their unbelief and we have to remember that anyone who does not believe doesn't believe by their own choice not because God made them to not believe. God is at work all along doing what he said he would do. God is faithful even when we are not. So what is it that causes people, what causes us to doubt God? Oftentimes it's our own failure. It's not God's failure. It's our own failure that leads us to doubt. Perhaps our friends or Christian people we know, people who are examples to us, let us down or they disappoint us. And we don't understand why this would happen. And so we blame God. We have a, maybe a failing marriage And we ask, God, God, you're the one that showed me who to marry. You're the one that pointed this partner to me, and now it's falling apart. 
we have to keep in mind that it's the people that let us down. We may let ourselves down, but God will not. Our poor choices, somebody else's poor choices, are not God's inability or inaction in keeping His promise in our world. But we must be reminded that there is a remnant and there always has been. And God cannot and will not fail you because He is God. We must continue to put our trust in Him. So Paul reminds us that the first reason that we can know that God is faithful is because there is, was, and always has been a remnant of true people who are following God. The second reason that we know that God is faithful according to this text in Romans is that we see in this next part that there are benefits because of Israel's unbelief. That sounds kind of weird, right? Like, how would it be a benefit to people that Israel rejected the Messiah. Let's see what Paul says in Romans 11, 11 and 12. He says, Again I ask, did they stumble so as to fall beyond recovery? Not at all. Rather, because of their transgression, salvation has come to the Gentiles to make Israel envious. But if their transgression means riches for the world, and their loss means riches for the Gentiles, then how much greater Riches will their full inclusion be? Paul starts again with a question. Have they stumbled? Has Israel stumbled and fallen so far that there's no way to come back? Paul is asking if it's possible that Israel is too far gone. And Paul says no. That they've just fallen, that they've just stumbled. It's not a permanent fall. God has brought about this rejection to further His salvation. The plan is bringing salvation to the Gentiles. But it ultimately then benefits Israel as well. When we read the book of Acts, if you read through that uh, sometime on your own, you see that Paul often refers to preaching as first to the Jew and then to the Gentile. And maybe you've been like, well, that's weird. Like, isn't it for everybody? Absolutely it is. But see, Paul presented it first to the Jews and then to the Gentiles because it was only after God's chosen people rejected Jesus that Paul turned and proposed it to the Gentiles as well. And so there's a benefit to the fact that Israel rejected the message because it brought the blessing of salvation to the Gentiles, to you and to me. And so then Paul turns his attention to the Gentiles and he says to them, And he shames and scolds them because all of a sudden they are boasting and bragging about the privileges that they have in Christ. The Gentiles now, because they're the majority, because it's a mostly Gentile church, much like it is today, the Gentile Christians are then tempted to to brag and to be proud of the fact that they have this new high position as sons and daughters of Jesus, of God even to the extent that many Christians think that they have replaced the Jews in God's plan of salvation. Maybe you've heard people say that before, that that God came to save the Jews, but now since they've rejected him, he's come to save everybody else. And that's what we sometimes believe. Let's take a look at verse 13 when he says, I am talking to you Gentiles. Inasmuch as I am an apostle to the Gentiles, I take pride in my ministry in the hope that I might somehow arouse my own people to envy and to save some of them. 
Paul's acknowledging that while he's coming to bring the gospel to the Gentiles, there's a sense of pride and responsibility that he feels to make sure that his gospel is still going out to his people in the hopes that some of them will turn back to Jesus. It's interesting in our world how often jealousy is a powerful motivator, right? How many times have you seen maybe a boyfriend or a girlfriend when you were in high school or whatever, and somebody breaks up with their boyfriend or girlfriend, and then that person starts to get a lot of attention, right? And then they regret, like they start a change of heart. They're like, wait, 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 maybe I made a mistake, right? Because now their ex or whatever you want to call it is getting attention. Um, in my house, I kind of laugh sometimes, you know, if one kid decides, I'm going to be Superman, and I'm going to help mom, and I'm going to take out the groceries out of the car. I'm going to be really helpful. All of a sudden, the other person is like, oh, well, I'll help too, right? The one who never wants to do anything now is motivated by jealousy because of the attention that someone else is getting. See, God knew that. God knew that. And so the hope, the hope for the Israelites was that when they rejected Jesus as Messiah and the Gentiles started to live in the peace and the love and the joy that comes from God, that Israelites, God's people, would see the Gentile church and would be jealous of what they had. And Paul's hope was that many of them then would turn and want the same faith of the Gentiles. That they would return to God as his chosen people. Verse 15, For if their rejection brought reconciliation, what Paul's talking about, to the world, what will their acceptance be but life from the dead? If the part of the dough offered is as first fruits is holy, then the whole batch is holy. And if the root is holy, then so are the branches. Paul's using the Old Testament and he's using the idea of, of first fruits to make a point to the church. In the Old Testament, you would take an entire lump of dough and you would sanctify it and set it apart as an offering to God. And likewise, the entire harvest was sanctified. By offering part of it to God, they sanctified the whole thing. It was called the first fruits. You've heard this before when it, you know, we give of the first fruits. We give up the top of what we get back to God. The first fruits here represent Abraham. That's what Paul's talking about. And the Jews would understand that he was the first fruit of the promise. That the God who made Abraham holy, the God who called Abraham, the God who made the promise to Abraham can also make his descendants holy and set apart as well. And then Paul gives the example of branches. What, like we think of branches on a tree, that, that they share the same nature as the root. And Paul is not saying that every single branch is going to be saved. But what he's saying is that all of those descendants can continue to be set apart for God by special attention because they come from the same root. This continuing relationship between God and Israel gives them reason and gives us reason to hope that there's a future spiritual renewal for the nation of Israel. Verse 17 and 18. If some of the branches have been broken off and you, though a wild olive shoot, have been grafted in among the others and now share in the nourishing sap from the olive root. Do not consider yourself to be superior to the other branches. If you do consider this, you do not support the root, but the root supports you. Paul uses this conditional statement 
the sentence to get to the heart of what he's frustrated about. The olive tree is the representative of the place of blessing and privilege that the people of God had. The root of the tree, the root is the covenant that God made to Abraham, which Abraham received that covenant by faith, that he would become the father of many nations. And the branches that are broken off are the Jewish people who have rejected the promise. They're the Jewish people who have rejected God's way of salvation. And then he references the wild olive branches that are grafted into that same root system. He's referring to, Paul is referring to the Gentiles who were grafted into the same blessing that the Jewish people had. And so the Gentile Christians who might have been tempted to be proud of the fact that God took them as wild branches and grafted them into this system, they might be feeling really, really proud and really, really privileged and really, really blessed but Paul says that they received that blessing only because of the Jews. That they've been grafted into the people of God. They've been adopted in and placed into the family by way of the root system, which was the Jewish patriarchs. The Gentiles have not replaced the Jews in God's plan. Instead, they have been grafted in with the Jews. And I think sometimes that's important for us to remember that we owe a lot of the blessing and the privilege of what we have to being grafted into God's family. Paul reminds the Gentiles they didn't earn the right to be grafted in. They were grafted in by faith, and they can be removed by unbelief. Pick up in verse 19. You will say then, branches were broken off so that I could be grafted in. Granted, but they were broken off because of unbelief. And you stand by faith. Do not be arrogant, but tremble. For if God did not spare the natural branches, referring to Israel, he will not spare you either. Consider therefore the kindness and the sternness of God. Sternness to those who fell, but kindness to you. Provided that you continue in his kindness, Otherwise, you also will be cut off. See, if we as followers of Jesus come as needy and repentant sinners, God responds with kindness. He responds with open arms, and we experience the kindness and the goodness of God. But if on the other hand, we come out of privilege and like we've earned it, where we started with humility and faith, but we become arrogant and proud of our position and we try to make ourselves look good, offering God all the things that we can do. Oh God, look what I've done for you. And implying that we deserve everything that we have, the Bible tells us and Paul reminds us that we can experience His judgment. The last two verses I want to share, verses 23 and 24, and if they do not persist in unbelief, they will be grafted in, for God is able to graft them in again. After all, if you were cut off from an olive tree that is wild by nature, and contrary to nature, you were grafted into a cultivated olive tree, then how much more readily will these, the natural branches, be grafted into their own olive tree? We should be praying for Israel. We should be praying that God's chosen people would be repentant and grafted in through 
Jesus, the Messiah. And here's the good news. If the gardener can graft in us, if the gardener can take wild olives, if the gardener can take the Gentiles who were not originally children of the promise, and he can graft them into his family, if he can adopt them, as Ephesians say, as sons and daughters of the God, of, of the King, then how much more can he graft in? And how much easier would it be for him to graft in a branch from the cultivated tree? The truth is, if the Jewish people will put their faith in Jesus, they will be grafted back in again. And we must reckon with the possibility that the Jews can and will, to some degree, be restored to their privilege and blessing as being God's chosen people. How and when this will happen, there's a lot of theories, there's a lot of ideas, there's a lot of speculation. I have no idea. <laughs> but I know it'll happen by faith when the Jews put their faith in Jesus. And so as we, who may not be nationally Jewish people, I am not, here are three lessons that this reminds us and teaches us that apply to us. You're sitting here going, well, I don't understand how this applies to me. I'm not uh, Jewish by nationality. I haven't rejected Jesus as the Son of God. Here are some lessons about God's faithfulness that apply to you and I. Number one is God is always faithful to his promises. Can we say amen? This is a fake it till you make it kind of a verse. Sometimes we don't believe this very well. Sometimes it doesn't look like this is happening. Sometimes it doesn't feel like this is happening. But as a preacher of the word of God, I can assure you that God is always faithful. That what he said he will do, he will do. And it may not feel like it's been done yet, and it may not be done yet. Remember, when God went to Abraham and said he was going to have a child that was more than 20 years later. Like we, like when I got married, we were like, we want to have a kid in the next couple years, right? Like that was sort of the, what you wanted when you're making your own little plan for your own little family or whatever that looks like. But God told Abraham he was going to have a kid in his old age and made him wait for 20 years. Whenever we think that God may have abandoned us, when God isn't showing up, friends, listen, he is faithful. God is faithful. We must put our trust in God even if we have to wait. And even while we wait, listen, trust me, he's faithful. What God is doing now and how he goes about doing it, we don't always know. We don't always understand. He is keeping his promises. He is working in your life and he's going to do everything that he promised he would do. The first lesson from this is that God is always faithful. And just like we have no idea how God's going to restore the nation of Israel, we don't. We have no clue how that's going to unfold. But we can take it to the bank because God said that he would, that they were his people, and that those who would turn to Jesus would find life, both Jew and Gentile. God is faithful. Number two, there is no place in our life for arrogance for pride or for boasting or bragging, being cocky, whatever you want to call that, there's no place in the life of a believer for arrogance, pride, or boasting. We can't be arrogant. We can't judge other people. The Jews were, and they still are, God's special chosen people through whom God chose to bring salvation into the world. Jesus was Jewish. 
I mean, that's where our hope came from, was Israel, right? Like Jesus came from that race to bring salvation into the entire world. We have no position to brag or be arrogant or proud of, oh, how great we are because God saved us. We should be grateful for the role of the Israel and Jewish nation. We should be so thankful for the Savior that came. But Israel, as a whole, uh, by and large, they've rejected Jesus. God used the Jewish leadership actually to um, kind of force and coerce Pilate into crucifying Jesus. And sometimes we've heard people say, well, it's the Jews that killed Jesus. But let me tell you and assure you that it is actually you and I who killed Jesus. It is your sin and my sin that nailed Jesus to the cross. It was not a national statement. It was a sin statement of Jesus declaring that he would pay for our sins. And in the end, we are the ones responsible for Jesus on the cross. And it's his grace that made a way for our sins to be forgiven. So we can't be proud or arrogant. And the last thing I want to say after God is faithful and we should not be proud is this. Number three, that faith and faithfulness to God and his grace are the only ways that we will be saved. Our faith, our faithfulness, and God's grace is the only way that we will be saved. See, the, the majority of Jewish people have missed out on God's grace because Paul said they don't believe, that they've rejected the belief in the Messiah. But the truth is that the majority of our world doesn't believe. And so sometimes we think, Man, how crazy it is that Jesus came and his people missed it. But the truth is most of the Gentile culture, most of the culture that is not from Israel has still unbelief and rejected the message of the cross of Jesus. Those of us who have believed in Jesus and we put our faith in him, who have received grace that only came from him, we can and are and will be saved. But Paul warns us that God doesn't have to spare us either. That if we don't remain in his will, if we don't remain in his goodness and his kindness, if we ever leave a place of faith and we return to unbelief, Paul says if we become proud, if we put our faith in anything else, that we will be lost and cut off as a wild branch and not grafted in to the family of God. And so we must continue as followers of Jesus to work out, as Paul says in other parts of the Bible, to continue to work out our salvation with fear and trembling. Not fear like we're afraid, but fear like reverence. Remember the words of Solomon, we said fear of wisdom is the beginning of knowledge, right? Like fearing God is the beginning of our faith. Having reverence and hope and trust in the one who sent Jesus for us. And so we must walk by faith and be faithful knowing that it's only the grace of God that saves us. God is faithful, friends. We can't brag, we can't be proud of our position because we have been grafted in. We're wild branches that God through his grace because of our faith and our faithfulness, but mostly and entirely because of the work of Jesus on the cross, he has grafted us into his family. Not by anything we've done, but by his grace. And so we respond in faith and faithfulness to the living God. This is amazing grace. This is unfailing love. 
That, that He would go to the cross. That He would come from the nation of Israel, the very ones who many would reject Him. That He would come for the others, the Gentiles, who many of which would reject Him. And He's calling you and I in 21 and beyond, starting today from this day forward, to live in faith. To know and to trust and to believe that He's faithful. To not be proud, but to be humble. And to take the Gospel of Jesus to the ends of the earth. Let's do it, church. If you've never given your life to Jesus, there's no better decision that you could make today than to surrender to the one who's faithful. And you don't have to be proud. You can come in humility because it's not anything that you've done. It's a gift that he's given to you and he's asking you to open it up and to be grafted in to the family thanks to Israel and the Savior that came from them. And so we pray for the Jews and we pray for us, and we pray for the lost. Because it's not our descendants, it's not our nationality that saves us, it's the blood of Jesus. So whether we are Jew or Gentile, and this is what Paul's saying to the church, no matter your background, no matter your story, no matter your privilege or lack of, no matter where you've been, no matter what you've done, you are not too far gone from God to graft you into his family. That's why we call the church a family because we've been grafted into, thanks to Jesus, the family of God.